The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you've got your copies of God's Word, turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter, well actually chapter 4, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I do want to tell you, y'all think Bruce was kidding, but actually every Monday my wife gives me $10. <laughs> if you think a Celtic like me is frugal, you ought to meet this German I married. I mean, it's unbelievable. And in fact, when she gives it to me, she says, don't forget to bring back the change on Saturday. So uh, so anyway, that's that's mine. And, for, and But I'll help you out if the registration's uh, a little bit too much for you. Looking forward to the conference. Do pray for it. Some of you have asked, why is it on a Wednesday and a Thursday? That's not a very good time. Well, this was actually, the conference is aimed for teaching and ruling elders so that they could get back uh, for their Lord's Day and would have time to travel to get here from the Lord's Day. But the Gospel Reformation Network wanted to open it up after, particularly when our seating capacity increased after we we had planned it from 450 to 750 or whatever it is now. So if you would, would you please look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, here's what we have done. I've done a series with you, and it was one that flowed out of the series on the Apostles' Creed. As I tried to bring to people an understanding of why it says Jesus descended into Hades, which is the original Hades, the intermediate place of the dead that has two categories to it. The place of torment in Hades called the abyss and the place of blessing in Hades called paradise or Abraham's bosom. And that Jesus has a true human death. He's got a true human body, a true human soul. And so everyone wants to dismiss that, but actually that is the fulfillment of Psalm 16, that he would not abandon his soul to Sheol. That's the Old Testament word for Hades, nor his body to the grave. Therefore, the resurrection of Christ was the resurrection of his soul from paradise and after the third day and his body united in perfection so that we can see what awaits us in the resurrection of the dead uh, for us. And so when people began to understand that, when it began, the implications began to be seen, that's, that's very important for many reasons for us to affirm that. But one of the reasons it's important is because there is the pattern for what happens to us. As I have said, the last time you'll hear me say it, your grandmother was right when she taught you to pray. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take, not your body yet, your soul then, absent from the body, present with the Lord. What's present with the Lord? Your soul. And sometimes I think we just need clarity on this. I, many times I will be in a funeral and I know what people are, what they're wanting to say and what they're saying. But for instance, someone who has struggled 
say with uh, arthritis or some physical malady of significant proportions. And then, you know, at the funeral, they'll say, well, praise the Lord. They're up and running and jumping in heaven. No, they're not running and jumping in heaven with that body yet. That body's going to the grave, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And then it will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ. Their soul goes to be with the Lord. That's what goes to be with the Lord in the perfections of uh, the perfected soul in the presence of the Lord. That, In other words, what happens to the thief will happen to all of us. Absent from the body, present with the Lord this day of your death, you will be with the Lord in paradise. Now, the theologians have always called this the intermediate heaven or the intermediate destination. I don't like to call it that because of, because of what it does. When I say intermediate, well, that doesn't sound like it's the, that doesn't sound like much of a blessing. So I prefer to call it what I believe the Bible reveals it to be, not an intermediate state. And, and another reason I don't like to say it is because people confuse it with the fabricated notions of purgatory uh, that are found in the Roman Catholic doctrines. And so, um, and so I just prefer to give it what I think it is, the immediate heaven. That's where you now, when you die, that's where your soul goes to be with the Lord in that immediate heaven. And then when Jesus comes back, then your body is raised and the perfected body is joined to the perfected soul. And then the ultimate destination, which is the new heavens and the new earth. So my friends, you're not going to spend eternity in an ethereal floating on a cloud somewhere up there. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and you're going to spend eternity on that new earth. And the God who now ruling from the heavens will rule on that earth, and there will be no sin, no consequences of sin, no curse of sin. There won't even be the ability to sin, and that will be the eternal destination that we have with a new body and a new uh, for the new heavens and the new earth well that automatically brought up well okay Jesus uh, Harry when will Jesus give us our new body well when he comes again well what how, how do we know when that is so we then took the time to hear what Jesus said about the signs of the close of the age and his second coming second what what does the Bible teach us about the judgment seat and are there two and a half second comings or two second comings or one second coming and what about this thousand years How, and so we spent some time uh, looking at those issues that that are pertaining to the second coming from which the believer from the judgment seat goes into the new heavens and the new earth with the glorified body and perfected soul and the unbeliever with a body that cannot perish will be hurled or cast into the lake of fire Gehenna the place of the infinite um, unending judgment of God in outer darkness meaning absolute isolation and also uh, in torment. Uh, that's, that's where, that's the judgment of hell in that day under the irrevocable wrath of God that is justly given. 
So I thought I would end up because for most of us here, we've got the, Jesus has not yet come back. And so if he doesn't come back first, whereby we will just automatically be caught up, even as the bodies are brought up to be joined to the perfected souls who return with Jesus and I will be caught up to be with them and to be deposited in a new heavens and a new earth. If that doesn't happen first, then we face death. What, what, what does that look like? And so to kind of sum up this immediate heaven and to give us a sense of it, I thought I would do my closing uh, comments on this series from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, uh, a, a text that people don't go to, uh, but I think is most definitive to understand what's, if Jesus doesn't come back first, what's next on the agenda for you and for me. Well, here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure, that's Jesus Christ, a personal saving relationship with Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. There's a euphemism speaking of our bodies, which were originally made in Adam from the dust of the ground. So we have these, this treasure in our, um, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see the frailties of these bodies, then where do we get all of this supernatural power? This is God's work in us, not our work to get to God, but God's work that is in us. And then he says, we, we are uh, afflicted in every way. So we're in a fallen world and in a fallen world, these bodies get afflicted. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Remember, take up your cross and follow me. We're always counted as sheep to be slaughtered. We die daily to live unto Christ. So he says, we are always carrying in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, folks, if you want to write a little something there, just say, see Romans 12, 1. I urge you then, brothers, notice not for the mercy of God, but by the mercy of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. So our, we, we have not only gathered worship, we have lifestyle worship. And I will say this, I'm absolutely convinced yours and mine ability for consistency and growth in lifestyle worship throughout a week is directly related to our embracing gathered worship and the means of grace on the Lord's day. That gathered worship sets the template, sets the thermostat for lifestyle worship, where in our bodies we present ourselves not like the old covenant where you brought dead sacrifices, but the new covenant because of the atoning death of Christ, our sacrifice, we bring living sacrifices before the Lord. And then, so then he says, so that's how we are living, the manifesting the life of Christ. For we who live are always being given over to death. But Jesus, but, G, um, but, um, for, are we getting over to death for Jesus' sake? 
so that the life of Jesus also may be, may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in, uh, in us, but life is in you. In other words, this body is dying, uh, and it will be laid aside. That's part of God's appointment. Since we have appointed unto men once to die, since we have this same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. So when that body's laid aside, we will be brought into his presence. For it is for now look, look at what he says. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our soul, our spirit, our heart, those terms that refer to that part of us that is made in the image of God, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So the body is wasting, but we're growing spiritually. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. In other words, this affliction in the body, God is using that to perfect our souls, to bring us into his presence. As we look not in the things that are seen, but in the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, this is all transient. This heavens and earth is going to pass away and be refurbished. This body is going to pass away and then be refurbished in a resurrected body. But the things that are seen or unseen are eternal. For we know that this, that if the tent, that's another way, not only jars of clay, but now he uses another euphemism for the body, that or another metaphor for the body, that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. Now you just draw that one right back to John 14. Do not be fearful, do not be troubled. And you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go away to prepare a place for you. He is preparing our home. That's our home. This home that he has given us is transient. It's being torn down. And it will be raised for the home that he gives us for all eternity. So it is a house made not with hands, eternal in the heavens. For if this tent is, for in this tent we groan. Just send that right back to Romans 8, where it says that these bodies are groaning to be delivered. For in this body, in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed. It's not that we don't want a body, but this body is bearing the curse of sin. And just as we were born again spiritually, we need our body to be born again. We need it to be resurrected. We need it to be transformed. Because we don't want to be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as our guarantee. The Holy Spirit bears witness with you 
that these promises of a new body for the new heavens and the new earth are secured in Christ as you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. So we are always of good courage. We know that while, no matter where we are in this profile of our life, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from this body, the body, and at home with the Lord. That is with him in that new body, in the new heavens and the new earth. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Then you can draw that one right back, Philippians chapter 1. Whether I, I want to honor the Lord in life and in death. So whether by life or by death, that Christ would be honored in me. We want to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. So those who are in the books at that day, their sins will be accounted, and they will be accountable for them. On that day, we... Our sins will not be accounted to us because they've already been paid for by Christ. We're not in the books. We're in the book of life in that day. And from that time on, we have a new body for a new heavens and a new earth. Well, those are just some basic thoughts in kind of wrapping up our study on that. Now, one of the things we pointed out toward the second coming of Christ that germane to our conversations, one of the things that we pointed out is that before Jesus comes, there is something that has... That has happened throughout all of history. There has been the beast of the sea, which is tyrannical government that would take the place of God. It loves to produce chaos in order it can be your savior. Isn't it interesting? Your savior doesn't produce chaos. Your savior produces order in your life. But what the tyrannical messianic governments that would take God's place, they produce chaos in order to be your savior. And see, we will save you. And what, and throughout history, there is not all, there has not only been, uh, there has not only been this tyrannical government that you see unfolding, days of Daniel, you see from Assyria to Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome and then throughout the history and the ages. But always accompanying it is an apostate man-made religion that supports it, the beast of the land, the beast of the earth. And we see some of that today. It should not, it should not amaze you because that's been the course of history. That's been throughout history. And you see it again today. So tonight in our conversations, we're, we're going to take a look not at the beast of the sea, but the constant battle that the professing church not become adulterated and apostate and become the beast of the land. That, that, that for the sake of cultural acceptance and applause and power is unfaithful to Christ and conform to the culture. How can we remain faithful? That constant pressure is there. So I'm going to ask Bruce if you'll come on up and um, we'll go into our discussion. I think we've been receiving questions. You may want to send some questions and then we'll try to, uh, I'll try to answer them. And I'm sure whatever I don't get answered, you will readily uh, fill in the blanks.
you'll just answer them the way we talked about in your office. Okay, That'd all right. Great. Just okay. the way you taught me. Just right. the way I was walking you through right. in the office. Got it. I got it memorized. Thank right. you. Okay, so you said this morning that we were going to talk about issues facing uh, our den- denomination. And for some people, they might not be able to write a list of what these issues are. What are the types of things that are um, uh, facing our, our denomination? Sexuality, homosexuality, critical race theory, critical theory, intersectionality, social justice, um, cultural transformation, etc. This sounds like a list of just cultural issues. And yet you're putting them in, in a context of these are issues facing our denomination. I think probably many of us would say on most of those, if we understand what they actually mean, would say, hasn't that been asked and answered? Yeah. Well, I wish it had. Well, yes, it has been asked and answered, but they don't stop asking. Um, yeah. And, you know, in my, as, as some of you know, I do a 10 minute program on this constantly. And somebody asked me, where do you get your material? My problem is not, my problem is what do we put on the cutting floor? Because uh, there's just so many things happening. So what we're looking at in our culture is this movement to a neo-pagan culture. It's called a secular humanism. That's just a euphemism for neo-paganism and the description that I've been preaching on in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Um, but the, and it comes under the term progressive. This is a progressive movement. In other words, this is an evolving movement. Uh, and, um, and so we're evolving uh, away from the inadequacies and the inequities of the of the American experiment, uh, and that's what is being pushed uh, with political policies. It comes under a variety of names, but basically, it's a it's called a progressive movement. Well, what's true politically is being mirrored in the church with what is called progressive Christianity, and. Um, and so you've got all of these issues that are coming up. We had revoice, which was uh, side A. Side A is that uh, the practice of homosexuality and the desires of homosexuality are um, built into nature, built into the creation. There's a, there's a gene mm-hmm. for it. And now you can see, I, mean, I don't want to get down into, I've got to be careful not to start. I mean, you know, how can, if you believe in evolution, then how can you possibly believe in a homosexual gene mm-hmm. because it couldn't reproduce? But uh, so, um, uh, but that's that's been uh, that's that's side A, and the church has got to get over this thing about homosexuality and sex outside of marriage as sin. You got to get over that. This is just the way we're made, and and um, and and we need to um, have the freedom to do those things. Well, side B says no. Um, homosexuality is not uh, part of God's creation, and it's not to be accommodated. It is sin, but the desire is not necessarily a sin. In other words, here's the sophistry of language that's being used, is that homosexuality is, comes from the sin nature. It is of sin, but it is not a sin unless you act upon it. And so, um, and so that's basically adopting the Roman Catholic view, which is the desires for sin are not sin unless you act them out. So if you commit to saying, I am a gay Christian, I have, I have same sex attraction, but I know to work it out and do it would be a sin. So I am going to be a celibate gay Christian. 
And um, so um, now, is that a position that the scriptures teach? Well, I don't think so. I think the Bible doesn't give us designer, designed sin natures. Mm -hmm. You get a homosexual sin nature. This one gets a promiscuous sin nature. This one gets a pornographic sin. No, we get a sin nature. And then we, in response to life and environment, begin to work it out in our life and how we're responding to the influences outside and the sin nature inside of us. And addictive sins are deeply rooted. Sometimes God will microwave them out, but most of the time it's a lifelong challenge to deal with it. So I applaud the commitment to celibacy, but you don't just manage your sinful desires. You mortify them. You kill them. But we have this side B um, that's been promoted through Revoice Conference that was held in a PCA church and has PCA teaching elders speaking on this. And so now there are complaints at the General Assembly that these churches should be disciplined. Their presbyteries did not discipline them. Therefore, other presbyteries are asking the General Assembly to step in and overrule those presbyteries because this needs to be dealt with. Uh, so we've got Revoice, Side B Christianity. We have, if you pick up and read uh, constantly, well, we've got to fight racism. Granted, it's a sin. Um, and we got to fight racism. Yes, it's a sin. But to fight racism, you need to go read um, uh, what's called Black Liberation Theology. You need to go read Critical Theory. Mm-hmm. You need to go read its subsets of Critical Race Theory, Critical Law Theory, Intersectionality. Intersectionality is the scorecard. So uh, whereby it looks at people and rates them on how oppressed they are. And so, um, and then, uh, so... Uh, that's that's what intersectionality is. So we've got intersectionality, critical race theory, critical law theory, and all of that. And we're told, but look, we're not saying, and you've almost got it canonized into uh, into young ministers are coming out thinking that's what I've got to read and that's what I've got to have to understand how to deal with racism. And my answer is no. Well, the pushback is this, and I'm, 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 I hope you all are hanging with me a little bit, but the pushback that comes to me when I say, no, you don't have to read them, is, well, you can't possibly know it, uh, therefore you need to read these things. I said, no, no, these things were not developed by people who were, under racism. These are political social tools that were developed for the Mm -hmm. purpose of spreading international communism and their whole point, they have, they are, they, they are acknowledged anti-Christian, anti-gospel. They have no hope. They have no salvation. Uh, they define repentance as penance that is continually. And then the whole point is the oppressed now become the oppressors, which will lead to those oppressed that will have a, that will create uh, a pushback on them. It is designed to create disorder, violence, and chaos. And guess who will step in to save it? The government. And so you're, I buy says, well, Harry, defunding the police? I don't want to defund the police. You want a federal police force, not a local police force. And we will save it. We will mm-hmm. step in. And now the church is embracing something in which it's accommodating all these things. And they'll say to me, well, Harry, you can read critical theory, critical race theory, and critical law theory and the books on intersectionality, you can read them in their offshoots. And 
look, just chew the meat that you get and spit out the bones. And I will admit, there are some things that unbelievers write that by God's common grace, sure. there's some meat. But this isn't one of them. That's the wrong picture. This is, these things don't have meat. All the meat I need is in the Bible on this stuff. This is not the DNA of your skin. This is the DNA of your heart that leads to partiality and discrimination. And Jesus deals with the heart. He doesn't just prune the edges. He doesn't just say, okay, the oppressed get to be the oppressors. No, he brings us so we know how to love one another. He brings not social justice. He brings biblical justice. Where you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And the only way you can get there is through the gospel. And so the gospel goes to the heart. The better metaphor, these things are not a fish that you get the meat and spit out the bones. This, When you read this stuff, you're like a thirsty man who is in the ocean and you drink the seawater, you can't spit out the salt. Mm -hmm. It'll kill you. This doesn't have meat and bones. This is, this is the, this is drinking salt water thinking I can get refreshed and spit out the salt. You can't. It's inseparable. Its origins deem it non-redemptive. And so all of that, so you can go around, you can see the problem where you could go around the rest of your life and do what? Well, uh, and I could preach a sermon on why critical theory needs to be um, rejected. Critical law theory, critical race theory, intersectionality, revoice, side A, side B. And before long, the pulpit becomes a whack-a-mole instrument. Mm. And I really tried to think my way through this. And folks, I think all of those things need to be answered. And dealt with. But the real issue, they're all coming under an umbrella of progressive Christianity. Therefore, I'm making a recommendation to you today. If you want to know about critical theory and, and those issues and you want to, and you want to do a deep dive, then uh, my friend Vody Bachman's recent book, Fault Lines, is absolutely um, superior to anything I've read. And Carl Truman's The Triumph of the Modern Self. Those are the two things I would recommend to you. But if you want to get the issue of progressive Christianity, then I recommend to you Machen's seminal small book, Christianity and Liberalism. Christianity and Liberalism. It was written to answer the movement of Christian liberalism from the 18th to the 19th century. But Harry, we're dealing with progressive Christianity, a movement from the 20th to the 21st century. Why would you recommend a book that's designed to show uh, that liberalism, theological liberalism, is anti-Christian? It's not a subset of Christianity. It is anti-Christian. It is the enemy of Christianity. They use our vocabulary, but not our dictionary. They use the glossary of our theological vocabulary, but they don't mean the same thing. They don't use our dictionary. And he shows that. But Harry, why would you recommend it now? Here's why. Because progressive Christianity is cut from the same bolt of cloth as liberal Christianity. 
The dress is designed different, but it comes from the same bolt of cloth. Christian liberalism did not, its impetus was not to destroy Christianity. Its impetus was to save Christianity from cultural irrelevance. The modern man with the modern academic world, modernity demanded we had to adapt. If we didn't adapt in the night to the 19th century development of critical um, of critical research and academic principles, if we don't adapt as a church, then we are going to be put on the dustbin of history. Does that sound familiar? If we don't adapt, we're going to lose our children. Does that sound familiar? If we don't adapt, we're going to be on the wrong side of history. Does that sound familiar? That is, that was the movement of Christian liberalism. We want, now watch, we want to save the church from irrelevance so that it can transform the culture. Does that sound familiar? We're going to save the church from cultural irrelevance so it can be an instrument to transform the culture. Well, progressive Christianity. Oh, and one more thing. And we need to get rid of the unnecessary divisions. And therefore, the Protestant church launched at the same time um, a new confessional recommendation whereby all the Protestants could come together as a big force and not be divided. Inclusiveness. And if you have to give up a few Bible doctrines, that's okay. But doesn't the Bible say, how can two walk together unless they are agreed? Doesn't Paul say, I know there are divisions among you so that those who hold to the truth are approved? It's not unity at all costs. It's unity by the Spirit through love, but never at the cost of truth. And so... uh, And so there was this drive for inclusiveness. So what do we see in progressive Christianity? The church is going to be irrelevant. We're losing our children. But in liberal Christianity, it was we got to get rid of these archaic Christian doctrines that are supernatural. Miracles, virgin birth, resurrection. And so people say to me today, they say, Pastor, nobody, nobody in the name of progressive Christianity is saying do away with the virgin birth. They're not saying that. No, I know they're not saying that. What they are doing, though, is saying, here's the new mission of the church. Cultural transformation. Our mission is don't be irrelevant, be the culture shaper. That's what drove Christian liberalism. Do you remember a magazine that came out? What did the Protestant world say? The 20th century will be the Christian century. They even started a magazine for it. The Christian century. And to have the Christian century, we can't be dismissed because of our Neanderthal supernatural doctrines. We got to vacuum out of our confession anything that's got the supernatural. That won't fly in the new, in the new uh, modernity. It won't fly. And that's what Machen wrote. (laughs) 
He said, they're using our terms, but they're eviscerating their meaning. This is not a help to Christianity. This is not a subset of Christianity. He carefully entitled the book, Christianity and Liberalism. Do you know what the most important word is in that title? And. Not Christian liberalism. Christianity and liberalism is something else. Theological liberalism is something else. Well, in progressive Christianity, the onslaught is not against, the onslaught is not against the confession. It's against the mission. But here's what you got to understand. Mission will always ultimately determine the message. If you want to be a cultural transformer, you're going to be conformed to the culture. I'm for cultural transformation. I love Acts 17.6. The world is turned upside down by these people. But Paul did not go out to turn the world upside down. Paul went out to turn sinners right side up. And guess what happens? Their life changes. Guess what happens? Their marriage changes. Guess what happens? Their families change. Guess what happens? Their neighborhoods change. Guess what happens? Their cities change. Cultural transformation is not the mission. It's the consequence. Like church growth. If you decide church growth is the mission, you'll get a pragmatic gospel to put meat in the seats. If you decide that social justice is the mission, again, I'm for biblical justice. But if we decide social justice is the mission, then we're going to get a social gospel. If we decide self-esteem is our mission, everybody needs to feel good about themselves, we're going to get a therapeutic gospel. If we decide capitalistic success is our mission as Christianity, then you're going to get a prosperity gospel. The mission will ultimately define the message. Progressive Christianity is not coming directly against the message. It's coming with the mission. And that's what will change the message. And it'll be less than 15 or 20 years. Now, that's way more than I know you were asking me. But that's... Uh, that's uh, do we have another question? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'm having to spend a lot of time on this right now, not only as a pastor, but as a presbyter and as a commissioner in our General Assembly. And I believe this General Assembly is going to be highly definitive, and the next General Assembly is going to be highly determinative of does progressive Christianity not have just a presence, but does it get a root? And uh, that's what I think has to be dealt with, is not go around to the various issues, although you need to know about that, but to see where it's coming from. And that is, we will save Christianity. We will save Christianity by giving us a relevant mission, human flourishing. Seek the welfare of the city. Pastor, doesn't it say in Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city? Yes, but go read the preceding verses. He defines the welfare of the city. We, the city does not define the welfare of the city we seek. Jesus defines the welfare for the city. If you want to see welfare to the city, go read Acts 8. Philip went to the city of Samaria. He preached Jesus 
and discipled. Next verse. And the city was glad and rejoiced. There's, uh, we have, we have a mission. It's make disciples. We have a comprehensive message. The whole counsel of God with the gospel as the foundation, the formation, and the motivation. But we will not turn out Christians who are salt of the earth and light of the world. You have a broad mission. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. But you can't get there if Briarwood doesn't stay on mission and make disciples through evangelism and discipleship. That's what turns out Christians who love mercy, walk humbly with God, and do justice. Because we get not only a new record, a new heart, but a renewed mind through discipleship and through evangelism. And that's why we've got to stay uh, on mission, to stay on message, so that we can see those consequences. Christ's church growing People coming to Christ. People seeing themselves made in the image of Christ. People uh, being effective in their business. People um, being encouragers of others. Uh, people doing biblical justice. That How do you get that? By the church staying on mission, on message of what Christ has given us and called us to be and to do. Can I give you one example? I'm going to give an example Wednesday night, but let me give you another example here. I stood here the last sanctity of life, and there were 10 ministries up here. Lawyers for life. Now, there's something. (laughs) Doctors for life. Lifeline. uh, the, The pregnancy centers. Divorce recovery. I mean, I'm sorry, abortion recovery workshop. The care for the people who, with adoption and foster home. I saw all ten of those ministries. And as I looked, I counted eight of them had been started by Briarwood members. Why? Because we discipled them. And then they got a burden for this and went out salt of the earth, light of the world. There's where their heart went. But they could never have done it. Like, like better basic. I, I knew every year I was going to get a visit from John Glasser. Every, well, twice a year. And this 81 year old retired FBI agent would come and tell me that every member of Briarwood needs to be down tutoring in the inner city and doing better basics. Forget this campus outreach and young business. This is what everybody ought to be doing. And I just loved it. And I'd, I'd talk him out of the tree. And I'd say, we've got some people, they're the last people you want down there tutoring, believe me. But he had that heart. Why? Because he had been evangelized and discipled. And at 81 years old, he unleashed something that reverberates throughout the city. That ended up with discovery clubs. And um, all of that, so I'm sorry. Let me stop. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Romans chapter two. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Just get, that, that, I feel like we just got what was left on the editing room floor from the uh, sermon this morning. So let me ask you a question that we didn't talk about uh, beforehand. Um, so what's the motivation? So progressive Christianity at some level you feel like is seeping into, coming into, not yet taking root in our uh, denomination, but it's coming in. So are those wolves in sheep's clothing, sheep and wolves' clothing, 
Are they brothers who have adopted another mission but with good intention? Are they uh, really liberals who know that liberalism won't work? So how about progressivism? What's your read of that? Well, first of all, I'm not amazed that we're facing this. I believe our founding fathers had it right. Here's the mission and vision of the church. They said three things. True to the word, the inerrant word, faithful to the reformed faith, and fulfill the Great Commission. But unfortunately, (laughs) succeeding generations don't always get on board. We need to improve this. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense where we understand that with contextualization. But contextualization is speaking in the terms the culture understands, not speaking in the terms that the culture demands. And so the culture doesn't set. In progressive churches, you will, thank the Lord, hear sermons on racism. Mm -hmm. You won't hear any sermon on the sanctity of life. You won't hear a sermon on gender, marriage, sexuality. The culture will applaud applaud the one on racism. For clarity, are you talking about PCA churches or progressive? Wherever there's a progressive pulpit. Mm -hmm. The culture sets the, that's one of the reasons I do expository preaching because I'm a, I'm a human being. I would rather do the things that get the applause. I mean, believe me, I, I was just sharing, uh, over here. I forgot who, I think it's Warlicks. I, I, has anybody memorized any verses from Romans? Anybody sure. memorized any? Can I see your hand? How many have memorized any, any verses from Romans two and three? I, may, I would ask you to stand up and quote it, but I'm not going to. We memorize Romans 8, Romans 12, Romans 10, Romans 5, Romans 1. Yeah, we memorize all those. But these issues of our sin and the depth of our sin, I would not jump. I would rather, I would, listen, let me go preach on Romans 8. But you've got to deal with the whole counsel of God when you do expository preaching. And God's people need it. And even though we're like kids, I don't want the meal. You're glad when you get older that mama made you eat the meal. And this isn't me making you eat the meal. This is God making me put the meal on the table for you. Because God knows you need it. So progressive Christianity takes its cues from the culture. Not from the scriptures. Now, do I believe these are wolves in sheep's clothing? The vast majority, no. The vast majority are sheep in wolves' clothing. I don't think they're heretics, but I believe they are embracing heretical teaching. I think they're probably right-hearted, but wrong-headed. Uh, some of them are my best friends. This is not easy for me. I mean, very best friends. Uh, and we have to deal with these things. I, I put the, the vast majority I put in the category of Peter when Paul had to come and tell him, Peter, you've let the people influence you and now you're preaching another gospel. He, he didn't, Peter wasn't a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was a sheep and a shepherd that had wolves clothing under influence. And I believe he corrected himself as I read first and second Peter. 
So um, that's what I think. And I think this is somewhat inevitable. If you'll go read your Bible, it's called the book of Judges. Every 40 to 80 years, Mm -hmm. there's a downgrade. And the only thing that can answer the downgrade is leadership. I love my elders and deacons who are in the battle with us. Because I just went through this at Westminster Seminary. When it was 70 years old, we had allowed (coughs) teachers and professors that ought not to be there. So we were in a 10-year battle. And Westminster today is stronger than it ever has been, except its very first faculty. And this faculty rivals that faculty. But it was leadership in the board and the administration that fought the battle. We had to make uh, eight to ten changes in the faculty, but had to fight the battle. I believe that's where we are. This does not amaze me. The PCA is 47 years old. We're right in that 40 to 80 year mark. And um, I think this is, and, and we need God-centered leadership. So I love my founding. I was not one of the founding fathers, whether you believe it or not. I was not one. I was in college. I was in a founding church, though. And I admired those men and the sacrifices they made. So I'm not walking away from the fight. Uh, some have and some, some will. But I'm not walking away from the fight. I'm in the fight. And um, I'm going to stay in the fight until the fight, God signals that the fight has been lost and the confession has been abandoned. And um, by now, that's not just simply editing the confession. If the church will not bring discipline according to the confession, it's abandoned the confession. If we can't discipline, one of the marks of the church is church discipline. And if we can't, if we don't have the will to discipline the offices of elder and deacon and the and the membership of the church, then we don't. Uh, uh, then we cannot uh, be a, a, a biblical church. Folks, I love people trapped in sin too much to give them a fake news. I want to give them the good news. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go to a doctor if I've got cancer and he says, he, and he wants me to come back. So I'm not going to tell Harry he's got cancer. I'll tell you what I'll do. Harry, all we need to do is I'll, I, I'm going to take a flap of skin and put it over this thing. I don't want him to do cosmetic surgery. I want him to go after it. And I want him to deal with it. Well, we're physicians of the soul. And when we know sin brings death and penalties and consequences, and we've got the answer that's not cosmetic, it goes to the heart, then we've got to speak the truth in love. And to accept and love people, you do not have to accept and affirm sin. Pastor, so if they are sheep in wolves' clothing, then uh, that determines how we go about it. And from speak for just a minute, because I think that reflects, and I'm not saying they all are, but you feel like the majority are, then that reflects why the Gospel Reformation Network is doing this conference. It's not a a rebuke. Uh, It's not a everybody... Gird up your loins, we're going to, you know, battle with the sword. We're going to use the sword. Uh, but it is a, let's reach our brothers. So speak for just a minute uh, about the conference. Gospel Reformation Network began a number of years ago. I was moderator of the General Assembly, and I had an outgoing moderator sermon. It was in Norfolk. 
And I just, my heart was burdened because I saw an inadequate gospel being preached in the name of a gospel movement. It comes under the titles of sonship. Again, I have good friends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just think it's an incomplete gospel. It's a gospel that majors on the declarative blessings of justification and adoption, but doesn't call for the demands of the gospel by regeneration and sanctification. And so, uh, which we saw that, and I just preached a sermon. I preached a sermon that says um, that, um, and when I preached a sermon on the gospel, I said, gentlemen, uh, brothers, if we're going to preach the gospel, we can't fall into the ditch of legalism, and we can't fall into the ditch of antinomianism, that God's law mm-hmm. does not have a place in the gospel. The law can't save you, the law can't sanctify you, but the law directs you to Christ. And then when you come to Christ, the law directs you how to love him with all of your heart, soul, and mind, the lawful use of the law. And so half of your half of the New Testament is warning you against legalism, mm-hmm. something you gotta do to be saved instead of what you do for your Savior, and half of it is warning you against antinomianism, libertinism, a cloak, using the gospel of grace as a cloak to cover up your sins instead of killing your sins. And um well after the sermon I was overwhelmed by particularly by ruling elders. Can you, can I share that with my pastor, et cetera, et cetera? I said, sure. So we've decided we're going to do a gospel reformation network to winsomely publish, preach, and pray that we get back to the reformed gospel and not these adulterated gospels that have part of the gospel, the part of the blessings of your status without the call to holiness. For Christ, not for salvation, but for Christ, whom you love. And if you love me, you'll keep my commandment. Well, as things moved around, we actually began to see some success. And then came progressive Christianity. And then we realized in all of these things, when I, get, when I hear someone get up in the General Assembly and say, you can't pray the gay away. I was just overwhelmed. I... I First of all, this, we're talking about the sacred means of grace of prayer. And are you telling me that all I'm going to do is pray? Surely not. We're going to mm. disciple. Mm. We're going to fellowship. We're going to preach. We're going to teach. There's all kinds of things we're going to do. But to demean prayer mm. and say that this sin is so embedded... You can't pray the gay away. Listen, if I read my Bible, if I've got faith of a mustard seed, God moves mountains with it Amen. if he so decides to and when he decides to. So I, um, I realize this is a gospel issue. This isn't just a cosmetic issue. This is a gospel issue. We have people that don't, that, that will say they believe, but don't really believe 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that a homosexual, an effeminate, uh, an adulterer, a murderer, a, and he lists nine, nine sins, a deeply addictive sins. It's not exhaustive, but he mm. lists nine of them. And then he says, but you were washed mm. 
and you were regenerated and you were sanctified. The whole gospel, you were declared right by the blood and righteousness of Jesus. And then he went right to work on you and in you to set you free from the dominion of sin. Do you still have that old man that wants to get up? Yeah, but you don't manage him. You kill him every single morning with the means of grace. That's what you do. And you do it with all of your heart and your soul. So we realize this is a gospel issue. This is not a cosmetic, a nicety, secondary, tertiary issue that we can kind of all create the big tent. No, this is at the core of the gospel. I want to give hope to people that they can be set free from the guilt, the shame, and the power, and increasingly the practice. Some people may be, boom, done. Most with deeply embedded sins. As I say to people, there are seven of those sins in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 that were mine when I was converted and married Cindy. And, and of those seven, a number of them, boom, gone. Some of them I've had to kill every day for the rest of my life. But I can because the power of sin. I got sin living in me, but I don't have to live in sin. This is a gospel issue. And so the Gospel Reformation Network said we got to take this on. Again, winsomely, we're going to do positive sermons. O church, arise. What's our mission? What's our message? What's our ministry? Mm-hmm. We're going to talk to pastors. One of the talks Kevin DeYoung's going to give is the pastor as a plotter. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all, you know, the hipster, you know, with the soul patch and the tattoo and, you know, the shirt out and boom, he's got all these quips and boom, everything takes off. He said, listen, forget the dress issue. Be faithful as a pastor and uh, stay the course. And, um, and so there's all kind of great talks that are going to be given. We're out of town. Um, but, uh, remember you can sign up, register for the gospel reformation network. Then I just want to say one personal thing before you give the benediction. Okay. Are you going to say a personal thing too? No. Okay, good. Okay. Uh, I just want to Unless thank. Unless I have to. No, you Unless don't. I no, you, you, I think you already have said it first. I want to thank everybody for just your role in the implementation of Plan F uh, and going to adult Sunday school. It takes a lot of volunteers to do that. That's not lost uh, on us by any stretch of imagination. And a lot of patience uh, uh, with each other and with everybody else and with us and with the, the restrictions of facilities, et cetera. So thank you so much for the way you've helped us get now two weeks, two Sundays uh, into that. And we'll keep working and praying that the Lord will keep letting us move forward in, in transition. But, but thank you very much for how you've served one another well. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.